you would, join me in your bulletins or your Bibles in Acts. Acts 11, 19 through 30. We'll finish up, Lord willing. Acts chapter 11 today, which was hard. I found this chapter, this section is so great, and I didn't really notice that before. And there's so much. It might be one of those so nice, nice I preach it twice kind. We, we, we might see. Um, but let's pray, and then we'll read the text. Father, uh, grant your mercy, we pray, through your word to us that we may grow up into Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand for the reading of the word. Acts 11, 9 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and of Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year he met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Amen. This is God's word. So if you were down at the Grand Junction Joint Service, you'll notice this is a very similar outline. Um, and I realize this is really an applicable outline many places in Scripture, which is uh, an agricultural theme, which I feel justified in because Jesus often spoke in agricultural themes. Um, now, I question my the, the question I ask every week as we go through Acts is, uh, what is King Jesus doing in this passage? What is He doing in His in this passage? And every week the answer is essentially the same, is that he's building his church, he's expanding his kingdom. Uh, through means, through his people, through word, sacrament, and prayer. Uh, in agricultural terms, we see a very similar picture to uh, what is presented elsewhere in Scripture, and that is the master of the vineyard or field and the laborers in that field. 
As the church, we try to strive to cultivate a lively, fruitful, abundant vineyard in this place. Um, this place, I mean this valley, as servants of the master. This is his vineyard. This is his field. And we work in his field, carrying out his commission, fulfilling his commands, applying his methodology so that we could reap an abundant harvest. Um, so what do we have today? I have four stages of growth that we're called to both undergo and to labor with, to cultivate. We're both passive and active in this process. All of this is happening in and through Christ and by Christ and for Christ, the great master of the vineyard. So the, those four stages are planting, rooting, tending, and fruiting. Planting, rooting, tending, and fruiting. So the first is the planting stage. Um, we see here in this passage, Christ is expanding his fields. He, he's spreading his fields farther and farther, larger and larger, and a great, against great opposition. Um, this, this farming, if you will, is spiritual warfare. He's fighting off the weeds, expanding his kingdom out, leveling forests. He, the, the devil, uh, men and women, the Sanhedrin, all these people oppose the gospel and Christ is expanding his fields despite opposition. Uh, we see over and over again here the power of Christ crushing his opposition. The conversion of Paul or Saul being a primary example um, in the recent context, that Jesus is just demolishing his enemies. The most zealous enemy has become not only defeated, but a convert to Christianity. So if you remember way back to when we were in chapter 8, and in verse 1, it said, There arose on that day, this is the day that Stephen died, that he was stoned to death by the Sanhedrin. Uh, it says, And there arose on that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout uh, the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So way back then, you may remember I used the illustration of kicking the coals. The Sanhedrin wanted to put out this fire. They didn't like this Jesus movement. And so they went and just kicked the fire to try to stamp it out. But what happens when you kick a fire? The coals spread. They, they fly everywhere. So, in fact, their, their ploy worked against them. Jesus turned the table on them. He, in, that, in that way, he spread the gospel far and wide. Um, really, it's just we see this delightful irony throughout Acts of Jesus turning the tables on his enemies. Another illustration we could use is, is the Sanhedrin blew the dandelion. They were trying to get rid of it, but they were just spreading the seeds of the gospel far and wide. So Luke here, he, he circles back around to this, this theme in chapter 8. In verse 19 of uh, 11, he says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Um, it's actually convenient. <laughs> we have this map as out of scale and wonky as it is. Uh, Jerusalem's way down here. Cyprus is this island close to the mainland. And Antioch is way up there in the corner. And uh, Cyrene is way over here. This is really wonky, but <laughs> in Libya, in northern Libya. Um, 
So that's a little bit of the geography of what's going on here. Is, uh, these, the, the gospel is spread, and that's 300 miles from Jerusalem to Antioch. So the gospel is spreading far and wide. Um, each of these places, Phoenicia, I should say Phoenicia is a strip of land in the north up here as well, just across from, from Cyprus. Um, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch all had major Jewish populations, but Antioch itself was kind of a melting pot of cultures. Uh, commentator Daryl Bach says that Antioch reflected a marriage of Oriental and Hellenistic life with Greeks, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Persians, Egyptians, and Indians even making up the population. So people from all over are coming to Antioch, which is a major city, the third or fourth largest city in the Roman Empire and a major hub of commercial activity. Luke says that these people traveled, uh, the scattered people traveled uh, far and were speaking the word to no one except Jews, but there were a few, a few exceptions in verse 20. But there were some, some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Um, so likely these men were actually men from Cyprus and Cyrene who were in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And when Stephen was killed and the persecution broke out, then they scattered. Um, so when the, the Sanhedrin blew the top off the dandelion, if you will, in Jerusalem, these seeds traveled far and wide. Many spoke to Jews only, but these people spoke to Hellenists as well. And there's some debate about whether Hellenists means Hellenistic Jews or just uh, Greeks or Gentiles in general. But either way, by God's grace, the impact here is significant. In verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. I mean, I just kind of skip over this passage for reading Acts like, okay, there's the Antioch thing, but it says a great number, a great, this is a massive revival that's happening here in Antioch. The two images are kind of run parallel in my mind. Um, the first image is that of a few faithful men with their seed bags out in the field scattering seed. It's pretty simple. It's pretty, pretty mundane. Actually, in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples, that word go is a participle. So it's actually more like as you go, as you're going along, make disciples. This is what they're doing. Wherever God leads, whatever God's providence has in store for us, no matter how painful, these men have been persecuted and kicked out of Jerusalem. And yet, here they are with their seed bags out in the field, being faithful, faithful to spread the seed. I stole this from someone else. This is the title of the sermon, Unnamed Pioneers. Here they are forging new, new, uh, into new lands with the gospel, and we don't even know their names, just men from Cyprus and Cyrene. I think of what's going on in Ukraine right now. Somebody was asking me yesterday on, on chat, uh, why did God allow Ukraine to be invaded? There's a lot of answers to that. But we always want to know. We always want to know the ultimate why. We want to know what God has in mind. But we never know quite what God has in mind. Why did God let Stephen get murdered? 
I mean, that smacks of a, a losing God, a weak God. Why did he allow a thriving church in Jerusalem to be scattered, to be split up? What is he feeble? <laughs> Why does God bring various trials our way? We never know, but the people in the midst of the, the scattering don't even know. And yet they continue being busy about their calling, scattering seed with their seed bags. Faithful, unknown pioneers submitted to the providence of God. The second image that I have in in mind, there's the faithful, simple man with a seed bag, and then the mighty conqueror, King Jesus. The simple farmer, the gardener, beating back the weeds and thistles from kind of the edges of his little field doesn't quite capture the power of Christ in these moments. This is a military conquest. Even as Adam was supposed to care for and tend the garden and spread dominion over the earth, King Jesus, the second Adam, is now doing what Adam never was able to do. And against much greater opposition in a fallen world, he is kind of a a militant farmer. He's crushing his enemies. Uh, The the Mongols... (laughs) The Romans, they they don't have anything over Jesus. We were talking this week, we were asking, how many despotic rulers over the the course of history have said, submit to our program and you will have peace, right? But unlike men who try to secure worldwide dominance or, or obtain vast kingdoms, who have no right or no claim on these lands, Jesus has claim over the whole earth. He has every right to subdue it under his dominion. As I said, I think this passage gets passed over and it's one of my new favorites. But um, Antioch, here a, a major commercial hub, a melting pot of many nations and ethnicities, sees this major revival by God's grace, by, by the power of King Jesus, sparked by the simple men with their seed bags. You see how those two images run parallel. These people were only there because the Sanhedrin tried to and failed to snuff out Christianity and in fact spread it far and wide. This is just that delightful irony in Acts that victory comes through persecution and simple faithfulness. And the implications are extraordinary. Um, these communities of people ranging from, from Italy to Egypt, to even India, as a strategic, really military, spiritual military outpost um, from which the gospel can advance. You can imagine these people going back to, to India. You know, who knows who went from Antioch back to India and spread the gospel to India or to, to Africa or wherever they may have been from. This is how King Jesus expands the borders of his fields. It's a mighty conquest through ordinary, unnamed pioneers, faithfully spreading the seeds of the gospel. Even as they're enduring all manner of difficult and confusing providences from God's hand. So we never know. We may be in a trial right now. We may never know why God put us there, but he did put us there for a purpose. We know he's guiding history. We know he's building his church. 
we know he's vanquishing his and our enemies. And he's even calling us, ordinary men and women, scattering the seeds, planting the fields, uh, wherever he may call, in simple faithfulness. So it may feel like nothing to us, or it may even feel like we're going backwards. But to him, this is pinpointed, strategic, devastating wartime tactics. process doesn't stop at planting. The next stage of the process is rooting. These, these seedlings need to take root. Oftentimes, massive empires will grow and grow and grow and then collapse under their own weight. Uh, that's not a problem for Jesus, King Jesus, who, who is all-powerful and all-wise. And he, he, he does not simply conquer new lands and new fields, scattering seed, and he sees the seedlings take root and then leaves them to their own. He sets up infrastructure to ensure that these little seedlings survive and thrive. He doesn't leave Antioch a, a burned-out wreckage and call it conquered. Instead, he sends in support. He ensures order and systems for the thriving and reviving of that place. So in verse 22, the report of this initial widespread acceptance of the gospel in Antioch uh, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Uh, The dangers to a seedling Christian are many. We're all familiar with Jesus' parable of the the soils. Some, Some people hear the word of God, and it's snatched away immediately by the devil. The devil has been a liar from the beginning. He deceives, he deludes mankind. Some people receive the word with gladness. They spring up quickly, but they're in rocky soil and their roots do not grow deeply. And then when that heat of persecution comes, they wither. Rather than staying and fighting or going and continuing the work in faithfulness, they simply just slip into the shadows. They leave. They leave Christ because they can't handle the heat. Others, uh, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, uh, choke them out. They're weeds that come and choke them out. They forget that the world and its cares, the needs of everyday life, are placed here for the service of Christ and not for the service of us. And they, they choke out the Word of God in their lives. So there are many dangers to the seedling Christian. So Barnabas is sent to provide a necessary support so that this fledgling community of Christians becomes firmly rooted. Uh, And Barnabas is the perfect man for the job. He's a man from Cyprus himself. So ethnically he's a good choice, but he's also the encourager. The the apostles named him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. We're told in chapter 4 he was a man who sold his possessions and gave to the needs of the church. And in chapter 9, he was the one who advocated for Paul, who brought him in to the disciples and the apostles. So he's an encourager. And in verse 24, Luke gives him high praise. He says, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. 
Uh, Daryl Bach here says, Luke's descriptions of Barnabas support the portrait of him as a person of maturity, promoting maturity in others and unity in the church. I like that description. He's a person of maturity, promoting maturity in others and unity in the church. That's the call of the Christian, the Christian life. It's interesting because not only are we planters and tenders scattering seed, we're also plant, plants. It's kind of like the sheep illustration as well. Uh, pastors and elders are shepherds, but we're also sheep. So every Christian is both a planter, a tender, and a plant himself. I, I think of those, have you ever seen those Egyptian walking onions? They're onions that grow up real tall, and then they have basically seedling onions on top, and when they get really tall and heavy, they tip over and replant themselves. That's what we are as Christians. We're Egyptian walking onions. Now Barnabas' exhortation here in verse 23, he sa- it says, He exhorted them to two things, to remain faithful in the Lord and with steadfast purpose. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Um, remaining faithful to the Lord. It's amazing how much of the New Testament is devoted to this topic. Remaining faithful to the Lord. Galatians, Colossians, Hebrews, Revelation. They're all calling us in, in the face of opposition, in the face of false teaching, to remain faithful to the Lord. In some way, every book in the New Testament is about a call to that. It's to say, don't walk away, stand firm, persist, contend for the faith once for all delivered, strive, fight, run, don't quit. The reason for that is because the dangers for all Christians, not just seedling Christians, are so many. It's not because we doubt our salvation uh, or that we question God's preservation of our souls as Christians, but it's because it is so challenging. Life is challenging. The Christian life, the race is challenging, and we need that. We need encouragement. We need urging. We need exhortation. We need, at times, prodding and pushing and rebuke and exhortation. So these kinds of exhortations to abide, to remain, to persist, are the very graces of God that keep us running the race. That's what Barnabas was there for. And then his exhortation, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I just love this. Last week I talked about um, the telos, the end of all things, the end in mind, God's great ends which drive our end. I love anything in Scripture that tells us about the telos. Nothing really is more grounding, more clarifying, more motivating than to know the end for which we've been created and saved. If we, if we, if we ha- have to strive, we should have something to strive towards. Uh, my brother worked for this old fellow, Depression-era fellow by the name of Mel in Westcliff, and Mel would just have, this Brandon was in high school, and he would have Brandon just move junk from one location to another or he would have him uh, take nails out of an old like Folgers can and straighten the nails and, and it's purposeless work right a man can't survive doing that kind of work it's pointless it has no end no tell us so Brandon had to stop working for Mel <laughs> uh, uh, 
uh, I was talking to my friend the other night, and he's kind of not that excited about his work either. And I said, "How are you? How are you doing?" And he said, "I'm plodding along." And I said, "Have you? Have I told you about that article about the glory of plodding, which is an article I like to share with everyone regularly? It's one of my favorites, the glory of plodding." And he said, "You'll have, it, it, you're going to have a hard time convincing me about that." <laughs> And I, I, I agreed. I said, yeah, I guess it depends on what you're plotting toward. Right? There's a glory in plotting, but we have to know where we're headed. So I, Barnabas says, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Have that end in mind. An unshaking conviction about the telos, that we know why we're here. We know our mission. We know our the broad sketch of God's overall plan, and we construct our lives with steadfast purpose, not wavering to the right or to the left. I don't know if you've seen Star Wars, A New Hope, but they're trying to destroy the Death Star, which is a planet-sized death machine. And uh, the X-Wing pilots are going in to destroy it, and they come down into this channel. And when they get to the end of the channel, they're supposed to shoot a missile, and it's supposed to go down and blow up the Death Star. And so as they're going through the channel, one of the pilots keeps saying to the other one, stay on target, (laughs) stay on target. And sometimes I let my kids drive home on my lap from church, and there's a little gate between Mountain Shadows and Apple Tree. And when they go through the gate, I'm always, stay on target. That, that's the idea here, though, isn't it? From, from Barnabas. Stay on target. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So Barnabas goes. He sees what God is doing. He's grateful for what God is doing. And he helps these young seedlings get planted, get firmly rooted. He grounds them in steadfastness. And that leads us to the third stage of horticultural development and oversight. And that is tending. This is the growth phase of the plant's life. Tending the life of the plant. Uh, Once again, Christ does not leave his seedlings with kind of a mere profession of faith and a mere exhortation to abide and then go on from there. He provides further ongoing care. Instruction, oversight, uh, to ensure the well-being of, of this crop of sapling Christians here in Antioch. So Barnabas knows Paul's calling um, as the apostle to the Gentiles, and he goes to fetch Paul. Now by this time in the timeline, Paul is already up in Tarsus, which is over there in Turkey, which is his homeland. So Tarsus is about 100 miles from Antioch. Whereas Jerusalem is about 300. Um, Still, that's a multi-day journey on foot for Barnabas to go fetch Paul and bring him back to Antioch. He says in verse 25, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. That's the Great Commission. We remember easily that part about make disciples. We forget that other part about teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. 
from what we see elsewhere in Paul's ministry, I don't think this was simply kind of a year of holding Lord's Day worship gatherings for a couple hours every week. Um, Later on in Acts, we read of Paul. He's carrying on teaching late into the night, so late that Eutychus falls from the window, dies, Paul revives him, and Paul goes on preaching (laughs) until morning. (laughs) Okay, this kid died. He raised him from the dead. Let's keep going. Also in Acts 19, Paul and the disciples are found to be in, uh, in Ephesus in the hall of Tyrannus. It says, reasoning daily for two years. This is the kind of discipleship that they're dealing with. Matthew, uh, in Matthew 13.52, uses the same Greek word that he uses in 28.19 for make disciples. And here in, in chapter 13, Jesus says, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. And there that word trained is the same word as make disciples. That's what it is to be a disciple, to be trained, to be trained in the ways of another, trained in the ways of Christ. It's a a rigorous process of instruction. Um, There's a lot I wanted to say about discipleship. It's been on my mind lately, and and perhaps I'll devote a, a sermon or two to it. But for now, I think the point that is most germane is that King Jesus here is establishing and rooting his church firmly in Antioch. He's not just leaving them with a profession and a, and a call to persist, but giving and equipping them for the storms that are to come and the work that is ahead. So if we want to see a church that's firmly rooted and faithful as an outpost of truth and light in a dark place, uh, we should seek the Lord's wisdom on how to best grow in the areas of discipleship, both personally and corporately. Uh, both as being a disciple and discipling others. Christ granted uh, Antioch this grace uh, of the tending and teaching work of Paul and Barnabas, and that is the work of discipleship. And I trust he's granting us the same grace here and will continue to help us grow wise in our own efforts to train and to be trained. And finally, the last stage of growth is, is fruit, the, the fruiting stage. I see two great fruits in this passage. The first is from the end of verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were called, first called Christians. Why do I call that a fruit? They were first called Christian. It, uh, it's commonly believed that the word Christian was actually a derogatory term. Um, that those Christians, those Christ followers. Um, but there, whether it was or not, there, there's several striking things about this name Christian. Um, first, it's clear this Jesus movement is gaining its own distinct identity. Right? They're getting a name. Second, it's clear that the movement is large enough and public enough and making enough waves to, to merit a moniker. And third, it testifies really to the allegiance of these people. What's their focus? What's their steadfast purpose? We know what? We know who they were about by their name. If they are disciples, we know exactly of whom they are disciples. And it's actually a, a political title, Christian. Um, 
Craig Keener says that the title is formed by on the analogy of adherence to a political party. Uh, the Caesarians, the Christians, Caesarians, Herodians, Pompeians, uh, and so forth. So these people are Christians. It's a beautiful name. It speaks of unity. Uh, no matter our nationality, no matter our political ideology, we are all devoted to one King, one Lord, one Savior. We are Christians. Whatever else we are, we are Christians. It speaks to our unity. It also speaks to our fidelity. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Whomever governor, king, ruler we sit under, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We serve Him first. And it speaks of clarity. The word Christian speaks of clarity. Our allegiance is known publicly. I am a Christian. It's a label I'm willing to wear. Um, I bought a new car this week. New to me. The guy I bought the car from... Uh, I mentioned I was a pastor. He said, oh, are you a Christian? I'm a Christian. There's an immediate brotherhood right there. When we, You're a Christian. We know it's a public name that we're willing to take. It's a flag we're willing to wear. So the name Christian is fruit. It's fruit of the gospel being born out in the world. The second fruit um, is in this story about sending funds to... Judea in the last part of our passage in, in chapter 11, starting in verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the world. This took place in the day, days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Um, so real quick on, on the pro- prophecy part, and that's really a whole other sermon. The, the Didache, which is a very early uh, Christian instruction document, very early, indicates that it was quite common uh, for these prophetic type people to have itinerant ministries to go around from city to city. And so it's possible Agabus was one such person. And prophecy, of course, in the Bible can mean many things from speaking the word of God to foretelling events like Agabus does here. Um, History tells us that the reign of Emperor Claudius, that's who he means by Claudius, was actually plagued with a series of famines throughout his reign. Um, And they were varying in kind of intensity and epicenter of like the most severity. But the one that hit Judea especially hard was likely one in in 44 to 48 A.D. Um, And some commentators speculate this prediction actually predates that famine by three to five years. Um, Whatever the, the case on the details there, the emphasis here is on the extraordinary willingness of the Antiochian church to send aid to Judea. We see that name Christian playing itself out in reality, right? The unity, the care for brotherhood. This multi-ethnic melting pot church 300 miles to the north has come to view these people in Judea, whom they've never met, as brothers in Christ. And so they send them aid. 
Individual Christians here, it says, giving as they were able, cared deeply for the well-being of their brothers and sisters in Christ. So the fruit of the gospel is, is, is showing itself in the lives of these people. Their self-sacrificial love for people they haven't even met is fruit born out of steadfast purpose. They know their purpose in life. And what cost is it to me to send a little bit of aid to them? Because I know my purpose. I am a Christian. They are Christians. Their purpose is Christ. That's their steadfast purpose. Christ's teaching, Christ's mission, Christ's fellowship, and Christ's people. So in closing today, may Christ grant to us that we would be both recipients and actors in this glorious cycle of planting, rooting, tending, and fruiting. May he grant to us faithfulness and steadfastness of purpose. May he grant an abundant harvest here in this place to his glory. Amen.